Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast, David and Nikki Nellis. We're coming to you live from our fabulous palatial glassed-in radio studio here in the lobby of the equally fabulous Line Hotel mm-hmm. in Adams Morgan, and we have a show tonight. That you got to listen to. This is going to be great. In a little while, we're going to be talking to uh, Nate Mook. Nate is the executive director of uh, Jose Andres World Central Kitchen. And they, as you know, are responsible for feeding and taking care of a lot of people in distress, both here in the U.S. when there's a wildfire or a hurricane in Puerto Rico and really all over the world. Well, what's really interesting is that that was not the initial mission of World Central Kitchen. So I'm really excited. Nate uh, came on to our other show, Foodie and the Beast, which airs on... Sundays on 1500 AM and um, just a little one. Uh, And, you know, we, I really got, you were not there for that show, but I really got to learn a lot about Nate and all this incredible work that he's done. So I'm really looking forward to sort of learning more about him, learning what world central kitchens mission is now. And they have this huge event coming up on Wednesday called dine and dash. So we're going to, we're going to tear into all that later. Renaissance man. We're going to find out all about it. Later in the show. I don't know what that means, but go ahead. You don't (laughs) You say that about so many, people and you know, i'm always like why well, i feel like it's a term from like another era no i don't think so and nate knows that's why he's grinning okay. see all all right. Right. i got Maybe one over on it. you nikki nellis thank you all right but first we're going to be talking to let's see sam scroy i did it right yes not bad and sarah abdel rahim uh these are two folks who met while in school in jordan am i correct mm-hmm. and uh they created a program called tables without borders it's a nonprofit dinner series that features refugee and asylum-seeking chefs here in D.C. Uh, the inaugural D.C. dinner series is coming this week during World Refugee Week. and um, June 17th to the 22nd. June 17th. I'm a little early. Okay. You're excited, which is good. No, right. I'm just burning up my years right. more quickly. I'm only okay. 16. But, right. All right. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of delve into this because, first of all, what you've done is amazing. And the sort of the... The serendipity, the serendipitous nature of how you guys met and how this idea occurred to you is fascinating. So why don't you first well, talk so, a little? Yeah, let's talk about, Sarah, you and I were talking off air how this all started for you. So l- explain it to us. Yes. Yeah, so I spent a year in Athens, Greece, doing research with refugees and asylum seekers. And one night I went to one of my favorite restaurants in Athens, and it turned out that they were hosting a Syrian refugee chef. It was a really famous Greek restaurant. But on that night, the Greek restaurant, the head chef, and the Syrian refugee chef offered a completely new menu to guests. And it was such a wonderful experience to see Syrians and Greeks gathered around the same table eating food that's similar but also a little different. And it was really nice to see the community welcoming the chef and helping him integrate by allowing him to cook the dishes that he's loved to cook for years back in Syria, but in his newfound home, which was Athens. So was he actually, I'm just sort of curious about the particulars of that chef. Was he actually looking to work in Greece as a chef? Yes. Okay. He was um, He was resettled as a refugee in Greece, but mm-hmm. he was um, a chef by profession in Syria. Sure. And he was looking to cook and establish even a, res- a Syrian restaurant in mm-hmm. Athens, Greece. 
Got it. Okay, so then fast forward. Yes, fast forward to um, one night around a similar table eating dinner with Sam, Uh who's been my friend for a couple of years, and we're talking about what we need to do and what we want to do to make a difference aside from our normal day jobs. And we went back and forth for a couple of minutes, and I couldn't stop thinking about that night in Athens, Greece. So flash forward to now, this event is actually happening, but it's for one week with five DC restaurants and five refugee and asylum seeking chefs. Okay, so Sam, how did you participate in this and and how did you find these refugee chefs? It it just, it's such an amazing idea, but I feel like the particulars of it like are tough. How did you find everybody and get everybody together? Yeah, um, so we reached out to the refugee resettlement organizations in the DC area. Uh, we talked to a few of them, there's Catholic Charities, uh, Lutheran Social Services, and some other ones. And we kind of presented this idea to them and asked them, do you have clients that you think uh, would be interested in this, that it could help them out? Um, so they, you know, worked with us and provided kind of the details of the sure chefs they that they were working with. Yeah. yeah, they were definitely excited. Um, and so through them we met the chefs that we are uh, working with. So all summer. of the people participating, the refugees. And asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. And asylum seekers, thank you. All of them were in the food industry previously. Yes, um, some of them in different, in different um, aspects. So some of them were chefs in their home country. Some of them took culinary classes. And some of them came to the US and were actually really excited about presenting their culture and showing it to you know people who live in DC in a new way. So they started kind of learning about their own culinary traditions and taking classes to make that happen. Oh. So people are kind of at, some of them are at different stages in their culinary um, professional career, but it's really cool to see them all be aligned to really nice you know, and famous restaurants in DC and kind of embark on that journey, even though they're at different well, stages. Well, let me follow up on that because what are the famous restaurants? Yes, so the famous restaurants are um, on Monday, June 17th, Arake's Progress, which is here at the Lime Hotel Hotel. in D.C. Coincidence? I don't think so. (laughs) We'll host a South Sudanese um, asylum seeker. So now wait, uh, before we go through each day, is it a menu for the restaurant? Is it a menu, a select menu, just for people coming in for the evening? How How is it being executed in each restaurant? Yeah, each night is a little bit different. Okay. Um, so here at Rick's Progress, um, it'll be kind of a prefix menu, separate mm-hmm. menu, five course South Sudanese dishes and South Sudanese inspired dishes. So do you sign up for it in advance or do you, or can I walk in and if I, let's say I had reservations at Rick's Progress, that a Monday night for dinner, can I and I see the menu? Can I be like, oh, I would like to do this? Yes, Is that exactly. how that's going to work? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, great. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, for a pizza, it'll be one menu with the El Salvadoran chefs' dishes kind of incorporated into that menu, mm-hmm. and then the next two uh, nights with little sesame. That's that's kind of a separate uh, private dinner, so it'll just be one menu inspired by... Is it at Little Sesame, or is it at another location? No, it'll be at the rooftop Sun. of the Apollo oh, okay. apartment building on H Street. Oh, fabulous. So there are two nights, they're doing two dinners yes. there, uh-huh. and who will be cooking with them? 
Her name is Kamar. She's a Syrian refugee. Fabulous. Yes, and she'll be cooking actually a lot of dishes. We yeah. were, when we sat down to these meetings with these head chefs, we were kind of going in with the mentality, you know, we'll take what we can get. We're still new. We'll try our best. But it's so amazing how all of these chefs have really welcomed this concept. Mm-hmm. And um, Nick Wiseman and Rosen and Ronan um, Tene at Little Sesame, we sat down and he was like, what do you want to make? I know. And well, then, this is, I mean, we know Nick Wiseman really yeah. well. This is yeah. so in his They've wheelhouse. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But they all were super welcoming and said, what do you want to make? And then we'll we'll make up the difference almost. So all of our chefs are really introducing a lot of dishes and very unique dishes to this menu. It's not like a, you know, eight to ten. Mm-hmm. I mean, eight to eight and two. It's almost like we, our chefs, get to make the eight and then they're bringing in so the are two your, or three. So are your chefs collaborating? In other words, are Nick and your chef working together to present the, the dishes? Yes. Well, they oh, would great. have to because think about it. Like well. these chefs don't have access to kitchens. Like, they don't have access to vendors or food, mm-hmm. so they have to work with the kitchens here mm-hmm. in order to be able to get product and work with it and, and have a staff and help. Exactly, right? and it's been it's been really cool to see the collaboration. So our Syrian chef is making traditional baklava, but Ronan, who's the head chef of Little Sesame, is making a really nice cream that will go inside of it. So mm-hmm. it's a real it's very much a collaboration of the homelands and of the backgrounds of these restaurants and our chefs, which is really what we wanted the dinner right. to be. And you're doing Himitsu too, right? We're doing Himitsu and which night is Himitsu? June twenty second. June twenty second. <laughs> Saturday. Last the Saturday night. night so that's with event. Kevin and Carly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And, and that and that's with our um, our Uyghur chef and their two sisters okay. that are um, from that are Uyghurs and that's the area in West China. Okay. Um, Can you say that again? Uyghur. So it's U Y G H. You that's are the okay. Was. Right, There'll right, be right. a transliteration on the menu in okay. case you're interested. <laughs> but so now, since Simitsu is so tiny, I assume that's it. That's what they're serving at the restaurant that night, right? You can't get the regular menu as so well. So it'll be. Um, she keeps hitting your knee and cracking <laughs> me up. <laughs> I saw Sam <laughs> walking with a limp, me. actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it'll be a special menu, um, and her name is Huriet, who's the main Uyghur chef, and then mm-hmm. her sister is Medina. Uh, they'll be making, I think, five dishes on the Himitsu dinner, and then mm-hmm. Kevin on the menu, mm-hmm. and then Kevin and the Himitsu team will be doing the other few. Amazing. And they're going to be doing kind of Uyghur cuisine and their take on it. What so. an incredible experience sort of for everybody, right? Like for the restaurant, for the staff, for the people coming in, and then for these chefs. Like it just seems like... It's a win-win for everybody involved. Yeah. Now, is there a price cap on menus? How did you work on that? The pricing is up to the restaurant. That's kind of the, the one thing that they've had, you know, full, I think, uh, control over. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it'll be different for each one. But. And what about where the charity, like this is a fundraiser. Mm-hmm. So where's it going? Where's the money going to? Yes, so um, each restaurant will be donating between will be donating between 10 and 15% of the total night um, total night's proceeds including alcohol which is great and that will go to Hyas which is our nonprofit partner mm-hmm. and then a portion of that will stay with Hyas because we really believe in the mission they help resettle refugees and provide legal services to them and then whatever's left over from that agreement will help tables without borders continue throughout you know the years in order to help do these pop-up dinners and help 
um, connect refugee and asylum seeking chefs with these restaurants in DC. Good on and you. And we don't this have a shortage of, of either of those. No. So we're hoping to make this, um, you know, really continue. big and continue the mission forward. So is there a website we can go to to, to make advanced reservations for any of the restaurants or how does that work? Yes, uh, tableswithoutborders.org. Uh, we've got <laughs> we've got a way to donate there to the event and also to attend the restaurants the nights of the event. Um, a rig's progress. There's still reservations open. A speed mm -hmm. as well. And I think as of today, a few at Hamitsu on um, the Saturday. At Ten o'clock at night. But still, <laughs> if you'd like a really Listen, late dinner, it's hard to get into Hamitsu. So I mean, you picked. Um, oh, and we didn't mention Maidan. Yes, so Maidan, Maidan is Friday. Friday? Mm -hmm. Okay, great. with an Afghan chef. Oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I, it's really exciting talking to you, too. It's, I really hope that this is something that not only takes off next week, but that it's something that you can really grow with because it, it's the right time. And I think the city is super open to these kinds of experiences. Yeah. So All thank right. you. Thanks Best for your luck. work. Yeah. All right. Now, yes. Thank you. Okay, now great. let's slide Nate Mook in here and talk Hi, to Nate. him. Nate, you get those previously used headphones. <laughs> Pre-owned. Pre-owned. Uh, we're going to have to, Nikki will understand the phrase Renaissance man once she, you know, we sort of start at the start. We'll talk about, you know, World Central Kitchen in a minute, but talk a little about your background because you have a lot, you have accomplished a lot. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thanks for having me. It's so nice to have you. Yeah. Good to be back on the show with mm -hmm. you, Nikki. And to well, finally I mean, meet To him, finally meet you know. the star of the show. Right, exactly. <laughs> I know, Clearly. Nate. You know yeah, how that works. He's starstruck, you can tell. Yeah. Yes. Always. Everybody so, um, yeah, so let, let me think, where to begin? So, you know, my, my background is, is pretty varied, if you look at it sort of just and individually, but, but I promise there is sort of a thread weaving it all together. Mm -hmm. um, but I started, you know, early on in my career in the tech world. Um, I grew up outside of D.C. in Northern Virginia, just near AOL and, and uh, you know, when all of that boom was starting to happen. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, I found was so amazing about the technology that was coming out was the way it could connect all of us, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, you could be on your computer talking to people all the way around the world. Um, and that was magical. Um, and so I we got, take, we, I, actually, we take it for granted. Absolutely. I mean, we were just overseas and I'm just talking to my mom on the phone. Like it's nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's really fascinating. It's amazing. It's amazing. We forget that, you know, 25 years ago that, you know, that was kind of unheard of. Right. And, you and just now. Didn't talk to I'll people. give you one more. We had a son who was uh, downrange in Afghanistan for a year and he was on guard duty at these remote forward observation posts and he'd call every night and I'm wow. like don't you have something to guard you know don't you want to watch your ass but I mean he's like nah you know there's nothing going on but he would just call and that's great that was bizarre Nobody ever called from the Battle of the Bulge, that's for sure. <laughs> so. Indeed, indeed. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I, I thought my whole career was going to be in the tech world. Um, you know, I just thought it was fascinating the way that it was going. And, um, you know, you could tell that this was going to be something that all of us were going to be a part of. It was going to be in all of our lives and touching all of our work. And so um, so that's what I studied. I, I studied mm -hmm. computer science and, and business um, and ended up out in Southern California, uh, in 99 and 2000 during the first sort of dot-com bubble. Um, yes, slash bust. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, I sort of uh, really 
saw that there was this just amazing opportunity to, to do incredible stuff and kind of forge your own way in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I was going down that path for, for a long time. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, I wanted to, to try something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been doing it for so long and, and sort of wanted to scratch a little So how did you get two movies? Itch. Like you got to documentaries. That's a, that's a jump. <laughs> it's, quite, so, it's quite a jump. And you're doing like serious documentaries like real investigative documentaries so how did you how did you enter that world yeah so so i entered that world through an organization called ted mm-hmm. um which puts i never on heard TED of Talks. it i have no idea what you're talking about it's like renaissance man what what does that even mean yeah just ex- exactly. you know what i'm gonna have to beat you up in the car on the way home <laughs> good thing i'm not going anywhere with you so so ted you know was launching uh, this program in 2009 called tedx and they basically taking this ted platform that they had built and put all of this these educational talks online for everybody to watch um, and they wanted to take it all around the world and kind of open up this platform for for places because they couldn't do it themselves mm-hmm. but there were these amazing communities that wanted to come together to host these conversations to bring people together and so in the early days of TEDx I got engaged with the program and um, you know it, it sort of really continued this this idea of, of interconnectivity um, TEDx soon spread all the way around the world from you know, Boston to Beijing to Berlin to, you know, small towns in, right. in, yeah, in Mongolia. I mean, it was... Suddenly everybody's an expert. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it was, you know, this incredible way to bring up ideas from the ground up and lift them up and, and provide a platform for folks to, to, to share their ideas and the ones that would take off would could leverage the platform of the internet to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I started working with Ted and, and had an opportunity um, to, to go out to uh, the Gulf, uh, the... Uh, a little uh, town, a city called Doha, which was um, in a, a country called Qatar or mm-hmm. Qatar, um, and uh, it's like a little thumb that sticks out of Saudi Arabia in the Persian Gulf. Um, but they have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of money. Yes, they have mm-hmm. a, a quite a bit of natural gas, quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, and a population that's very small. So that enables them to to do a lot. Uh, so I ended up out there, living out there for almost a year, working on this global project. We we put together this huge summit of of TED folks from ninety four different countries, um, and. Qatar was one of those few places where you could do that because, mm. you know, you could bring in folks from, from all over the place um, and, uh, you know, without dealing with all these visa issues and things like that. And as we know, our own country now has become quite restrictive. So, sure. um, so you know, while I was there, I, I uh, was working out of the Doha Film Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, set up and that's sort of where my office was and we were working out of on this TED project. And that um, kind of took me out into... This, this path of, of storytelling. You know, TED is this form of, of storytelling. It's how do you distill an idea in 15 minutes or less and mm-hmm. connect with somebody on an emotional level, get them to care about it, and hopefully, you know, do something about it too. Sure. And, um, you know, in many ways, documentary film is, is the same thing, just a different medium. Instead of going up on stage and, and making your pitch and telling the story, um, you're doing it through, you know, this visual medium of film. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that, you know, was sort of the beginning of, of uh, the next three years of my life where I, I didn't live anywhere. I was just going from place to place, project to project, um, you know, working with, with small small NGOs all the way up to... But the were there UN specific and, topics? I mean, clearly you did... How many documentaries have you done? So two, two long-form documentaries. That's what I thought. Yeah. Okay, so 
what was it about both of them that grabbed your interest? So uh, the first one that I worked on uh, was in Haiti. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was while I was at TED in the, in the early days of TED that I, I came across uh, a local chef here in D.C. named Jose Andres. Mm-hmm. And I had known of Jose um, growing up in the city, obviously. Haleo everybody knows and of Jose. Everybody knows of right, Jose. Exactly. I'd eaten in his restaurants. But I didn't know of Jose the humanitarian that was mm-hmm. a new side of jose and this was in the early days of world yeah central if you kitchen. weren't in the food world because you know he was a part of dc central kitchen forever and exactly. he really um was a tremendous trumpeter of that organization and, and he founded the capital food fight with robert yes, didn't he yeah, yeah. he, he did. and bobby yeah. founded together and they really raised money for that organization absolutely he was chairman for a while he's mm-hmm. chairman emeritus of dc central kitchen and um but after the earthquake in haiti he was so moved by you know this this sort of gap in uh, what was being provided, the work that was being done, and he felt that he could bring his experience, his expertise, and that of the the larger industry itself, of mm-hmm. the industry of chefs and restaurants and and everything that makes it up. Um, to bear on some of these challenges that he saw in Haiti. And that was the beginning of, of World Central Kitchen. So I met Jose uh, just right after he launched World Central Kitchen. Okay. Um, and but you were doing a documentary there? So was I, it the documentary about Jose? So that's how it ended up happening. Okay. So I, I met Jose in the beginning, and he he mentioned his work that he was doing in Haiti. And, and I was working with... Uh, you know, groups like the UN and the World Bank and a lot of small other NGOs. And, and he said, you know, come out and see what we're doing in Haiti. And um, so I ended up down in Haiti mm-hmm. uh, visiting some of the early projects as he was getting going. And Jose said, you know, we, we have to do – everybody thinks of Haiti as this very poor place that's just – it's terrible. They think of cholera. They think of the earthquake. And here it is on the exact same island as the Dominican Republic, which is... Which is is so strange. So strange. Right. Um, And obviously, it has a history of of a lot of challenges, Uh um, you know, failed leadership and collapsing governments. But but Haiti itself as a country is so incredible. And so he, you know, Jose shared this idea that he wanted to make a documentary about Haiti. He wanted to tell the story through the eyes of the people using... Food as this vehicle of storytelling and and connecting it to you know to the culture and the history and I think food is is sort of the ultimate exemplar of those things right I mean as we're talking um, you know about tables without borders and using food as a way to bring people together and share mm-hmm. cultural understanding food is that ultimate thing that kind of you know levels the playing field and and food because everybody has to eat everybody has to eat and, right and it's so tied to who we are you know our our culture and our our, our geographical birthplace and the mm-hmm. stories passed down through generations. Traditions, etc. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. so, um, so sort of looking at Haiti through that lens. And so we, we ended up, um, you know, having this crazy idea to make a documentary. Um, so did you focus also on like his solar kitchens? Cause he was really a huge proponent of that in Haiti. Right? He was. Yeah. So we touched, we did, we touched on that, this idea of clean cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Haiti has cut down so much of its, its forest and tree cover, um, and it's, you know, it's all to feed themselves, right? right. And it's, it's so unnecessary. And so it, that was absolutely a piece of it, of, mm-hmm. of sort of understanding of how we got to where we are. Well, there's also something else about him. Because, you know, when you meet Jose, he's kind of like a dust storm. He comes at you with, you know, arms moving and Tasmanian words devil. flowing and all that. Yeah, but to be a chef, you have to be a process person. And he managed to feed more people and have his act together in a much more 
straightforward and you know efficient, effective way than even you know what what the federal government was trying. No, to no, do. no. But you're jumping ahead. So no, I'm just in, saying I'm talking about it in Haiti. No, but in Haiti that wasn't his goal. His goal in doesn't Haiti, matter. My point is he was feeding more people than anybody else. He was teaching people to feed themselves in Haiti. He, the goal of World Central Kitchen changed drastically. It did when the hurricane happened in Houston. That's when everything switched. Exactly. Right? So exactly. the original mission of World Central Kitchen was giving people sustainable ways to feed themselves. And you guys were building kitchens and bakeries, right? Yeah, exactly. Like that. So it was bringing, yeah, it was bringing that expertise um, to understand uh, how people cooked, mm-hmm. um, to look at some of those challenges like around clean cooking, for example. So, you know, this is an issue, um, you know, that touches billions of people around the world. People are still cooking with like three rocks and charcoal. I mean, and they're inhaling all of the fumes sure. from that. You know, and in closed spaces, no less, spaces. right? Exactly. So, um, so this was, you know, but you have to understand if you're going to offer an alternative or replacement, you have to understand how people do cook. You can't come in and say, okay, here's your one stove that's going to replace the way you cook. Right, good luck. Yeah, it's, you have to really know, you have to understand the people. And so that's what Jose came in and did. So we, mm-hmm. we tried to tell that story. We worked with PBS and National Geographic, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the documentary aired on PBS stations all across the United States. Um, and, you know, that was sort of our start to, to working together. But you're, you're absolutely right. World Center Kitchen was really focused on the long-term um, projects. So really, because it wasn't just Haiti. Where I mean, you started in Haiti, but then where did World Central Kitchen go? You went to Africa. Yeah. So we had uh, so the organization had projects um, in the Dominican Republic, mm-hmm. in Zambia. We have a Zambia. Um, a school bakery there. Uh, we worked in Nicaragua. We worked in Cambodia mm-hmm. um, with. Uh, and local what does that chef. mean? What did that look like in each of those areas? So it's a little different, but there was a lot of uh, a lot of commonality around the challenges. I mean, clean cooking is something that affects so many different countries Mm -hmm. Um, and also training culinary training so looking at you know teaching sort of the the uh, you know kind of the basics around safety and sanitation um, you know things that which is really hard if you don't have potable water absolutely how do you do that absolutely so so really kind of looking at, at different issues in different places but a lot of similarities and then also looking at social enterprises that was a key piece like how can we how can World Central Kitchen as an organization, um, you know, kind of help uplift the work that's already being done by supporting um, local organizations, by kind of bringing in a little bit of support and backing to help them kind of help themselves? Well, like what about said. funding for all this? Because, you know, clearly it's not just Jose giving money. <laughs> is it individual small donors? Is it is it foundations? Is it corporations? Is, is it yes? Yeah. All that, I so mean. so it is. So it, it you know it it has shifted over time. Um, you know, in the early days of the organization, especially really focused in Haiti, it was a lot of foundations, some individual giving. Dine and Dash was also the biggest event that World Central Kitchen put on mm-hmm. um, to to raise money here in Washington D.C. And that was that supported a lot of the work. Um, but things did shift. So as you mentioned, well, um, you know what? Before we talk about the shift, yeah. let's take a break. Perfect. So we'll take a break, and when we get back, we can talk about when it changed over for Jose and World Central Kitchen. This is David and Nikki Nellis. Industry Night at the Line Hotel. We'll be back in just a sec.
All right, we're back on Industry Night with Foodie and the Beast, David and Nikki Nellis, coming to you live at this moment, unless you're listening to a replay, from our studio here in the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan. We're talking to Nate Mook, mm-hmm. who's the executive director of World Central Kitchen, the organization founded by and still led by Jose Andreas. Um, and we we're sort of talking about the... You're, you're sort of ending up with a world of support that comes, you know, these things that's like a mushroom uh, expanding. Is there is there federal government support at all? Okay, wait, but we haven't explained the switch of what, how it went from helping, you know, places people like learn Haiti. People how to cook. Okay, he, they were disaster not helping, relief. They I, were not helping people in the States. We can do that first. Let's talk about helping people in the States and disaster yeah. relief. How it changed. Right. So we'll talk about, exactly, we'll talk about this shift. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, things... Things shifted dramatically in 2017 for the organization, mm-hmm. but it had been something that had kind of been growing over time. So Jose, as a discussion, as a conversation, Jose had been learning. Um, you know, this idea. Jose, you know, always says that you know he feeds the few in his restaurants, but he wants to feed the many. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, over the years, he's been sort of finding himself. I feel like you need to say that with an accent, you know, like made <laughs> in a Spain. Exactly. Uh, so he's, you know, he's been um, finding himself in the middle of these natural disasters. Uh, mm-hmm. In 2012, when Sandy hit New York, he went up to New York and, and was uh, assisting or advising the Red Cross a little bit, seeing how they operated. Um, when Hurricane Matthew hit both Haiti and the United States, Jose was down, you know, figuring things out. In Haiti, he mobilized some food trucks and went down to some communities and mm-hmm. serving some food. And, um Learning, you know, really trying to see what was working, what wasn't working, um, what were the what were the gaps that needed to be filled. Um, and but I feel like when he hit Houston, like I know, because it's like he picked up the phone and called his chef friends because Vic Albisi went with him, and he was exactly. like, "We know how to cook, we know how to feed people, let's do it." And like, exactly, I felt like we were all with him because he was like shooting video of himself grocery shopping, you know, like in <laughs> Dallas or something like that, being like, "I'm going to, you know, blah blah blah." Yeah, he almost got trapped in the floodwaters actually in Houston <laughs> when he was he was driving through trying to trying to get to some of the places, but but he did. He went down, mobilized uh, the World Central Kitchen team down in Houston. Uh-huh. The organization was feeding um, in one of the hospitals. And, uh, and you know, what he saw was uh, kind of a broken system. Right. Um, there was a, a convention center in Houston that had 16,000 people that were evacuated there mm-hmm. um, after Hurricane Harvey hit. Uh, the kitchen in the convention center was sitting dormant um, because of contracting issues of who controls it. The and union. The, yeah, right. right. Um, and, you know, but isn't it, that amazing? Wouldn't you think in a time of need, everybody be like, yeah, no. those laws don't apply. Let's get people uh, fed. And that's where I wanted to go because what he has, what you guys have shown is an ability to feed more people more efficiently, more effectively than FEMA. Right. I mean, that the, the, the culminating moment of that was really Puerto but Rico. But is it I think, shame? So. Is it Jose calling them and being like, open up the convention center? I mean, what, how does that red tape get cut that, you know, other people aren't willing to do? It is. It's, it's a little bit of knowing the right people to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit of, of just not taking no as an answer. And this is what happened in Puerto Rico. So right after, um, you know, uh, Maria. After Hurricane Harvey and then Maria hit uh, Puerto Rico and the Caribbean and really devastated. It was this Category 5 hurricane. Mm-hmm. Um, 
went right over Puerto Rico, destroyed the already fragile electrical infrastructure. There was no light. There was no electricity. There was no water in a lot of places. Um, and really, the island was was completely paralyzed. And I had just uh, I just wrapped uh, a second documentary with HBO. Another one about um, Freddie Gray. I feel like that's a yes. whole other show. <laughs> we can get into that later. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that was a, a documentary uh, with HBO about Baltimore in the aftermath of the death of Freddie Gray. Who mm-hmm. um, was killed in police custody and. We had just gone to some festivals, and I'd, I'd just gotten back back home, and, and Jose called and said that he was uh, headed to Puerto Rico in the morning, and this was just a couple of days after Maria had hit. And um, four hours later, I found myself at the airport, and we were we were getting on the first flight uh, to, to San Juan, mm-hmm. and we hit the ground, and and really not not knowing what to expect, um, but you could tell that especially after his Jose's experience in Houston, that there was a sense that there was probably something that that he could do Mm -hmm. um that he could bring his expertise and his connections and maybe get donated food whatever it might be but let's just get on the ground and see Mm -hmm. planning on being there for about four days only brought a you know a couple changes of clothes and we ended up there for you know two plus months straight uh Mm -hmm. after we hit the ground and and really uh you know just recognized when we got on the ground that that puerto rico was on a brink of a humanitarian crisis people Mm -hmm. had uh no access to food, and the federal government was was paralyzed. Uh, you know, they couldn't figure out how to get things to the island. The infrastructure was damaged, and there was, you know, it's and then there was so much being brought in that they didn't know what to do with all of it. And disseminate it, um, and it, things got stuck at the port, and it just the whole thing turned into madness. And so, what we did was was what chefs do, which is started in a kitchen in, mm-hmm. in a restaurant. But of, so where did you go and how were you able to, until that stuff was able to, the food and uh, necessary items yeah. were given out? Because you guys, I feel like you guys hit the ground immediately and were figuring it out right away. Well, here's so. the question. They kept saying they couldn't clear the roads and that was a problem. So, but you guys were getting up, not into the complete hinterlands, but you were getting up there. We went, we went pretty far, yeah. So we, how were we you used, doing that if they, you know, the feds couldn't do it? You know, we, we worked with, um, you know, the local communities. We identified the routes that we could take. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we did work with some, got support of some, some of the government agencies that had routes and, and we, could, we could go with. The National Guard helped us get to some places as well. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, this is, this is sort of one of the big questions was, well, how do you, you know, how do you get food onto the island? How do you right. feed people? But, right. you know, Puerto Rico is an island of 3 million people. The food didn't disappear. Right. It's hurricane. still there. It's still right. there. You just have to know where to look and where to get it. Mm-hmm. Um, a good example of this as well is, um, you know, they, FEMA was, was trying to bring in um, a lot of bread. So it was coming in from, from Miami, for example. And they couldn't, you know, they were dealing with all this backlog in the ports and the ships and everything and just getting stuff mobilized. And so what we did is we just got some gas, got some diesel, identified the bakeries, fueled up the generators of the bakeries and had Mm -hmm. the local bakeries in Puerto Rico start making the bread, right? It's it's so logical and yet very different from the way that we as a a country sort of operate in these types of disasters. We Mm -hmm. don't take advantage of the local resources, the infrastructure. But what about electricity and product? How were you able to help? Because you gave them generators or they had generators. So they were able to get that up and running. But how were you able? They already had product. So, yeah, so they, they had uh, enough on hand in the beginning. To get started. For the first, yeah, to get started for the first, you know, the, the big warehouses. So we went to one of the big distributors on the island. On the first day we arrived, we went to one of the distributors, uh, which happened to, to have 
Spanish roots. So mm-hmm. Jose uh, from Asturias, where, where Jose's from, we just knocked on the door and he said, I'm, I'm Jose Andres and I want to buy your food. Mm-hmm. And we opened an account and we just started buying from, from the distributors on the island. And we started identifying the right people, the produce companies, the meat companies, the bread companies. And we started getting what we could locally. Um, we started leveraging, you know, the, the, the local community that knows the chefs, the restaurant industry that was there on the island. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we started small. I think one of the big problems as well is FEMA looked at this and said, okay, how do we feed 2 million right. people? They went, top, they went umbrella and it's, it's, instead of going micro. It's right? an impossible, yeah, it's an impossible, like, you know, challenge, right? How do you feed 2 million people if you're going to try to feed them three meals a day? That's 6 million meals a day, which well, is crazy. not only that, it's like when you're on a plane, right? They're like, if we're going down or you need help, you know, put the oxygen mask on you before you put it on the child. <laughs> so in that vein, like, don't try to feed everyone all at once. If you're Just able to sustain... That's a good one. I thank like you. But if you're one. able to sustain this small group, then they can sustain themselves and they can help with the next group. Like, it's... Exactly. And so on and so on. And it, it grows, grows, right? It grows. And that's what we did. We started small. We went from 1,000 meals a day to 2,000, to 4,000, to 10,000, to 100,000. Mm-hmm. Did you get, I mean, because there was a lot of flack passing back and forth between the mayor of San Juan and, <laughs> and our friend and all of that. Did you oh, get God. any resistance or did you get, you, you know, know? We we did. I mean, we, we got a lot of general sort of resistance because we... From the government? You know... Not it, Puerto Rico. No, no, not federal. Puerto Rico. Just, just more... Fever. Just trying to get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was it was the same, go back to the same question in, that we saw, that Jose saw in, in Houston after Harvey was activating, you know, who, how do we get permission to do this? We first went, on our first day we were there on the ground in Puerto Rico, we went to the big Coliseo, the big arena. This is, a mm-hmm. you know, equivalent of the Verizon Center here uh, in D.C. And um, they said, no, you can't use it. You can't use the kitchens to cook. Who said no? Um, who, who, whoever who, runs it? Whoever at the time had the the sort of the control over the space um, uh-huh. and there wasn't a mechanism sort of to come in from the top down and say, we're taking this over. Um, something that we're working on because this, this should be done in everywhere. Right. Well, listen, I can appreciate, appreciate the wrong word. I'm going to just pretend that I that this part of my brain understands that a, a convention center is like, oh, we're going to let you people in and you're going to screw everything up there's and you're going to make a mess there's and all, there's yeah. liability. Somebody's going to get hurt. You're going yeah. to sue us. We don't know if you're going to you're going to let in bugs or, you know, we don't know if you're going to poison Excuse people. Me, the whole island was just leveled by a hurricane. Right. Bugs. But but, the, but you, you know. know what I'm saying? Like, yes. So there's the legal ease exactly. of it. And then there's the we need your help. Right. So how, what is it that you guys can put in place so that when, you know, it's like a document, it's like, we take responsibility, blah, 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 blah. Just let us in. Let so us get up and happened? running. So we, we kept pushing. Jose wouldn't take no as an answer. God we wouldn't him. take no. We just kept, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing. And eventually, uh, took us a little over a week and, mm-hmm. um, we ended up getting, getting permission. Now the, the crazy thing is we had to pay for it. We had to rent it. So we were, you know, <laughs> Feeding, oh f- feeding Americans in need and uh, paying and a pretty hefty Who rental. Who are, are you paying? The convention center. The the the, orga- the yes the con- well so technically whoever runs the convention center exactly well, the, the, the city the San city Juan. owns right, it sure. but all of these properties um, oh, they have, have an operating an operating yeah. management company that runs it so you have to <laughs> you know who yeah <laughs> but, but you know we we you know we we didn't have time to to, to deal with it. we said okay we'll we'll work it out and right. um, you know at the end of the day we just had to had to get people fed and so so we took it over and that that uh, coliseum 
we we were cooking seventy five thousand meals a day out of. Well, now while you were doing that, who's figuring out with the National Guard and everybody else the routes and where the people are and all that? So I mean, a lot of that we we had incredible team of local volunteers, local chefs. We had uh, like. I think that's something that's really missing is that, you know, people aren't just waiting to be helped. Absolutely. Everybody wants to, they don't want to sit in their hot homes. Like everybody wants to get out. They, they want to help each other so that they can help themselves. And this is what we've seen everywhere we've been since then, um, to all of the places we've been from, from North Carolina to Florida, to California, Mm -hmm. uh, to Guatemala, to Indonesia. I mean, the, the local community really steps up and they, you know, you can come in and, and be that sort of guidance for how, people can help and and they get involved and they know, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, we don't want to be an organization. World Central Kitchen isn't an organization that sort of parachutes in from the outside and says, okay, we've got all the answers. We're going to fix things. We want to come in and say, okay, what, what can we do to support the communities on the ground? And this may not be something you want to get into, but what do you make of the difference in terms of the government's response to Puerto Rico then and now and other disasters here on the mainland? You know, I, I think that there's no denying that Puerto Rico was a major challenge, um, and it was hard. Uh, but there's also no denying that uh, there was this lack of urgency, right? Mm-hmm. That that if we had wanted to, as a country, we could have responded faster, rally, more, rally, yeah, more seriously mobilized. And I think, um, you know, we we saw you know the the failure that resulted, but. You know, unfortunately, it's not new, right? I mean, we look back to Katrina no. in oh my New God, Orleans. Right? I mean, it, we're we're sort of you know, unless we can really fix this the system, we're kind of doomed to to repeat this over and over. If we well, what I think is interesting is Katrina is such a great example because I was reading something today that mentioned Katrina, and I was like, God, I can't believe how long ago it was. It feels very fresh in my mind, but it's these storms are bigger. Yep. And, more Disa- and more frequent right. yep. disasters happening. And yet every time it's like, we're still surprised by it. Do you know what I mean? So we should well, no it's longer... not unlike shootings where they say, you know, right, our, our prayers, a... our hearts I know, and prayers I know, and but all that's that. another topic. But I'm saying you've got a pat response and it's almost, it's almost like you've got a, a learned behavior that people can't get out of. Yeah. I, I do think, you know, looking, talking to the states that we work in and the counties and, and there definitely is a seriousness where there's this sort of undeniable shift where... The storms are, are getting stronger. They're getting faster. Um, and this has really become sort of this, this as we were talking, this sort of next phase of, of World Central Kitchen's work. So we okay. started working on these sort of long-term challenges like clean cooking and, and building out uh, kitchens in schools and social enterprises. Um, and now, since Puerto Rico, we have this second major focus, so which is emergency response. So you're still doing the initial, right? We are. It's not as we much are. of a... I don't want to say priority, but it seems that this has become figuring out how to feed people in disaster situations seems to have become where you're going. It's definitely taken, I would say, the the majority of our attention. In 2018, mm-hmm. we, we cooked over 5 million meals for, for folks and um, after disasters, both natural disasters and some man-made disasters. Oh, well, I mean, you opened up here in D.C. I was a volunteer. Um, you know, when uh, federal workers were furloughed. Exactly. And you fed these people who were yeah. off of work. Yeah, we served about 100,000 meals, over mm-hmm. 100,000 meals here in D.C., plus a network of, of restaurants in the industry around the around the U.S. Doesn't that blow so. your fucking mind i mean well, but was actually but from the, my perspective what was really interesting about it was you know 
you think of it as like I went in to volunteer, mm-hmm. uh, which was my pleasure to do, obviously. And um, but it was such a well-oiled machine, you know. I mean, I volunteered at other organizations. Some have been well-oiled, some not so much. And it was just so fascinating because they were like, "Okay, you're going to be doing this. You're going to be doing this. This is how it's going to work." And then, like, when that lunch line started, man, we didn't stop well, until two. Well, if you can two. figure out how to feed people after a hurricane disaster, <laughs> just feeding people when they're just waiting you know, on the line. When 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 the government's put them on, you know, on a ho- on a ho- on a meat hook, waiting yep. for their jobs. Um, so what's next? So, well, that's what I was going to ask. Like, yeah. how do you take this that has begun and create a more global network that's ready to go? Because, I mean, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes—you name it, baby—it's coming. So, you know, that's that is the that is the question. That's what we're working towards. So we we do still have our our long term programs, and in some cases. Um, our emergency response transitions into long-term programs. So for example, we're still in Puerto Rico. Um, We're still on the ground. We're working on longer-term food security, trying to make Puerto Rico more resilient because it was importing 90% of its food. Uh, And that's, if a hurricane hits and cuts you off, that's that's a huge problem. But isn't Puerto Rico, I mean, the the land in Puerto Rico is, you know, it's a finite amount of land and it's been in constant use for several hundred years. Is there... Are they they not maximizing their ability to... You know, it's there's a lot... We could have a whole show talking about sort of the ways that Puerto Rico has been marginalized, unfortunately. But, you know, really the, the reality is is it's, it's, it's an incredible place. It's a Caribbean island that could be growing a lot of stuff. Um, you know, it doesn't benefit from any farming subsidies. Um, you know, it's cheaper for uh, buyers in Puerto Rico to import from Miami than to buy local simply because of the economics of, of the way that things work. So, you know, it's, it's something that we really need to work on and it'll be a long term, but we're really focused on the small farmers lifting them up and, and, and helping them out. And so, um, but, you know, the other big piece, as you said, is how can we really, um, you know, get, respond globally to, um, you know, we, we, have not had a day off since uh, in over a year. Uh, our teams have been active somewhere, working, cooking, delivering meals mm-hmm. um, for over the past year straight without one day off um, because of, of there's constantly something going on in the world. So, so is it developing smaller world central kitchens? Is it developing pockets? Is it being prepared before? I think it's you know all, I mean? it's all of those things. So we're, we, we try to, we go and we train. So everywhere we go, like when we were in Guatemala for two months, we've trained an incredible local team that if something, God forbid, happens again, they can activate. It's taking the model that we built in Puerto Rico um, and bringing it to all of these different places. And well, yeah, you're exporting it. My question, really, the question is because you, you, you don't have trouble going in and making, you know, creating wonderful things. It's the problems at the top that stop you. So are you doing advanced work in countries that are sort of in the eyeball of cyclones and tornadoes and hurricanes and all that where you, you have sort of the advanced permission? You know, we are. So we're, we're engaging with the, the emergency management agencies. We're doing this here in the United States as well in counties. We're also, you know, the, the amazing thing about this, the restaurant industry and the chef, the chef industry is that everybody's so interconnected and they know each other. And they all, I think, we're, we're seeing this realization that chefs also want to be doing more and they're engaging in their communities. They're getting more involved. They're it's a very generous um, group. It, absolutely. I don't it, think it chefs really, really get the, um, 
the acknowledgement that they deserve. I mean, Jose is on, on another level. Obviously, he has his eye on a very different prize. But just the chefs in the D.C. community or, you know, we can get to Dine and Dash right here because yeah. you have restaurants all over the city participating. I mean, I, I don't think people realize that when chefs and restaurants participate in events that are charities, yep. they are donating food, they are donating staff, staff they are donating a, a night's worth of business. Absolutely. So they are donating money that way. And it's a business. I mean, restaurants are business with razor thin margins. So I, you know, I, I love when people call me and they're like, oh, do you mind asking some of your restaurant friends for a couple gift cards? And I'm always like, Yes, I do mind. I'm not going to ask because they get asked all the time. I mean, people just exactly. think it's it's not a big deal for the restaurant, but it is. It is. It is. And it's it's incredible. And sometimes they'll send staff out to work with us for days, sometimes weeks on end. And yeah, they're working off two, three percent margins, maybe. Oh, it's, it's incredible. And and so, no, we, we are so grateful. And, and as you mentioned, Nikki, Dine and Dash, which is our big annual fundraiser here which in D.C. Which is Wednesday, it June is talk 12. About Wednesday, 36 restaurants, three neighborhoods, Penn Quarter, 14th Street, The Wharf. Um, amazing. We've got so a pretty how are VIP. You, how, people are just Ubering from all different neighborhoods. Gonna, how are you seeing yeah, it? Yeah, we're going to have some shuttles as well. Uh-huh. Um, there'll be shuttle stops where people can take to different neighborhoods. Um, that will make it easy to get around. Um, so do people have like something on their phone? Like walk me through the event. Yes. So they will. When So everybody's going to get assigned a restaurant to check in. Everybody who's signed up and registered. Um, mm-hmm. You check in at your restaurant. You get your wristband. You get a map. It has all the information. Um, and basically, it's it's a free-for-all. You can go to any restaurant you want. You can eat as much as you want. You can drink as much as you want. Um, depending on where, where you're starting, you can stay in that neighborhood. You can go to different, different neighborhoods. neighborhoods. You can move around. Um, we've got a, a for, for our VIPs, uh, we've got a, a pre-event and then a post-event as well down at the wharf. Is VIP so. already sold out? Uh, pretty close, if if not. We have a couple of tickets left, I think. Do you think, want to talk about who's going to be at VIP? Because you have some big name we've chefs. Got, we've got some amazing guest chefs that will be will be joining uh, Jose mm-hmm. um, from, from all over um, the the States. Um, some, some really incredible folks like uh, Hugh Atchison, who's coming mm-hmm. up, um, Tony LaFaso. So uh, really... At, so uh, all you chef hanger honors who like feel like you have to meet every chef. This groupies. is totally like you the mean, groupies. You mean groupies. <laughs> the groupies. Absolutely. You know, so, well, I, I call just... them toke sniffers. <laughs> and oh, Is that what you call them? Yeah, that's what I call them. Okay. What's it to you? <laughs> so all of the, the event information is on our website, dine, the letter N, mm-hmm. dash, dot info um, or you can just go to worldcentralkitchen.org mm-hmm. you can can go and click on it dine and dash so there's still some tickets left it's going to be a great night what is the cost uh, so uh, the tickets are one 149 for ticket for the night and that includes everything so and all of the all of the proceeds go to benefit World Central Kitchen's work mm-hmm. um, here in the U.S. and around the world and so like you said you know this is an incredible way um, to support the organization. We're so grateful to all of the, the folks that come out to participate, all the restaurants that are, that are involved, um, all of our guests and everybody. Um, and David, to go back to one of your original questions, so World Center Kitchen does not receive government funding. Um, the only time we did was when we were working in, in Puerto Rico for a brief period to reimburse us when we were yeah, serving I read about that, that tons, of, tons of food. FEMA was able to help reimburse us for some of our costs. But, but we really rely on... Um, the individuals, uh, you know, it's incredible the the power of the people. Um, you know, fifty dollar donation goes goes a really far far away. So, 
Well, you know. well, I was going to ask, how can people, if they can't go to Dine and Dash, I mean, it's a, you're not only doing it in D.C. this year, right? You're not doing it in other yeah, cities. Yeah, just in D.C. Because for a while you're doing it in Vegas and stuff like that. So um, if you can't do Dine and Dash... How can people get involved? Can they volunteer? Can they donate? What, how can they do things? Absolutely. So all of those things are, are wonderful. So on our website, uh, worldcentralkitchen.org or wck.org, mm-hmm. easier to remember. Um, we have, you know, you can go online, you can donate, whatever you can give, go straight to supporting our food relief efforts and long-term programs. Um, you can also get involved and volunteer. Uh, you know, we, we love that. Uh, there's amazing opportunities. Um, we have ongoing programs in Puerto Rico where folks can go down and volunteer if they want to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, really, there's always something, unfortunately, there's always things that are going to be going on where we need, we need hands. So, um, you know, after a natural disaster, it's, it's really important to, to have folks that can be supporting us. And, you know, we're so grateful, like, Nikki, when you came out to Chefs for Feds. I mean, please, so um, tiny, itty-bitty, itty-bitty, You know, bitty. it all helps. <laughs> it so all is so how do people important. get, in other words, if, God forbid, well, there will be something, how do they get in touch so they can move into action quickly? Yeah, so on our website, we have a way to, to sign up. Um, we also, you know, one of the best things to do is just follow us on social media. So one mm-hmm. of the things that we always really try to do that's very important, and you know this if you follow Jose, but... We're very open and transparent about everything we're doing. There's no, we'll, we'll show you exactly what's happening. This is no donate to the cause and find out six months or a year where later money where went, that right. money went. I mean, you're seeing in real time the communities, the people. And so follow us on social media, um, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I mean, follow Jose as well follow because, Jose, yes. you know, he's very vocal on Twitter. He does a lot on Instagram as well. And I mean, if you, if you don't know a lot about the organization, by following Jose, you will find out a lot. And exactly. it, it really is, he's inspiring. And all the work that you guys are doing is so important and necessary. So, um, you know, any way that people can get involved is well, really important. Really, Absolutely. I mean, we've just been lucky to know him. Forever. I met him the second day he was in Washington. <laughs> and, wow. and he is the same guy. And he's, he is. He is absolutely sincere and real. Uh, and this is a reflection of who he is, clearly. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, World Central Kitchen would not be possible without all of the amazing chefs and volunteers and people that make up all of our work. But, of course, you know, Jose really is the vision that, that continues to drive it forward. Of and, course. Um, and, you know, I think really, you know, pushes us to be, to be better, mm-hmm. um, you know, always, right? And, and, you know, he is so on top of everything going on in the world that, that he is, you know, he calls me every day, multiple times a day. He's like, what's happening with this? What's happening with that? Are we ready for this? Are we ready for that? Um, you know, because, you know, there is this sort of, uh, you know, this, this desire to, to do more. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming in, letting us thank know about me. Dine and Dash and also, um, you know, everything that World Central Kitchen is doing. Um, it's so important for people to get involved. Um, and also, so I want to remind everybody that earlier in the show, we talked about uh, Tables Without Borders, which is a fabulous event happening uh, June 17th to the 22nd, all around the D.C. metro area. You should go to the website, tableswithoutborders.org, um, and find out about where you can um, learn more about 
refugees and uh, asylum seekers uh, who will be cooking in the D.C. And area. I think we should have a special show and bring Sam back and find out why he hasn't gone to Sicily to meet his <laughs> okay. relatives. I think that's something you and Sam can discuss offline. What's the matter with you? Okay, so we want to thank everybody for joining us today. It's been a really interesting show. You can, of course, download this episode and all of our episodes, actually, on iTunes or go to the list, areyouonit.com. If you want to find out more about events like Dine and Dash, uh, you can also go to the list, areyouonit.com, where we post every Food and One event happening in the D.C. metro area. Of course, you can always tune in to Foodie and the Beast live on Sundays on 1500. And check us out here at the Line Hotel Industry Night. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. And please have a delicious week. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.